again because we're having a guest speaker, and I mentioned this this morning, I don't have the slide up tonight, I apologize for that, but there are some of these invites available. The speaker is a man called Josh Fortune, so that's the second Sunday next month at five o'clock again, and his story is he has spent time in Afghanistan and through his experiences there has come, I think he would say, back to faith in Christ. And so this is a a good night for inviting people, um, probably especially men, I would guess. So pick up one of these invites if you haven't got one already. If they run out, let me know and we can print some more. There is some information about Josh uh, on the invite taken from the back of his book, which I'm sure he, he will have available when he comes. He's coming to Birmingham for a weekend to spend time at different churches coming to us on the Sunday night. So I just mentioned that table talk next month. Before we start, let's just pray tonight. Father, we realize that as soon as we begin talking about anything to do with family, we enter what is very painful ground for some of us here tonight. And we realize that inevitably some of us will find things that are sad and things that we read from your word tonight to be very painful and difficult. So I pray that where we need to hear your challenge, we will hear that. And I pray for those of us who need to hear your comfort and your reassurance that we will hear that also. I pray that your spirit will be at work to direct your word in just the right way to each one of our hearts. Amen. As you can see from the screen, this is the second time we've been thinking together about man, what it means to be a man according to God's word. You may have some questions that came up last time if you were here. You may have held those over and not asked them, and we will take time faithfully at the end, although recently people haven't been asking questions, but we'll, we'll offer that tonight, and maybe something will come up tonight that you might want to contribute at the end. Last time in September, we looked at four words that define a man, according to Scripture. As Christian men, we are to be purposeful. We're created by God to serve God in God's world. We saw that we are to be faithful to our responsibilities and commitments. We're to be active in taking initiative, and we're to be accountable, open to being challenged and rebuked. And now, this afternoon, I want to focus on just one word, ambition. Maybe as Christian men, we're not sure if ambition is supposed to be a good thing for us or not. You may well spend your week in a work environment where you're surrounded by ambition. It flavors the whole atmosphere around you. And you may have asked the question, as a Christian, am I supposed to be without ambition? We're aware, too, that saying someone has no ambition is often used as a put-down. It's another way of calling somebody lazy. How do we get a proper perspective then on ambition? 
Well, we're going to look at two passages that call us to ambition. And they also define what our ambition is to be as Christian men. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. In the Church Bible, that's page 1192, and in the large print, 1845. 1 Timothy 3. And we'll also turn a little bit later to Titus, but to begin with, I'm just going to read the very first verse of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says to Timothy, Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. In the New Testament, the word overseer is interchangeable with the words elder, shepherd, and pastor. They're all referring to the same thing. A man set apart by the fellowship to oversee or shepherd the fellowship, a church leader. And we might think, well, what's that got to do with my ambition? Are you telling me I should make it my ambition to be a church leader? Well, there are two kinds of ambition. There's selfish ambition, and that has no place in our lives as Christians. It has no place when it comes to church leadership. Hunger for power and position is the worst and the wrong kind of ambition. We could turn to plenty of places where the New Testament tells us that. To pick just one example from Philippians chapter 2, we're told, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But apparently, there is another sense in which we should be ambitious for church leadership. Clearly, Paul believes that. In the verse we've just read, he commands men who aspire to be overseers. So what does he mean? If he's not commanding a hunger for power, what exactly is he commanding? Well, a church leader is simply an example worth following. The passages we're going to look at will show us that. And First Peter tells us that explicitly. Peter writes to church elders and he says, they are not to lord it over those entrusted to them. Instead, they are to be examples to the flock. That's what a church leader is. Never mind the title or the office. A church leader is first and foremost an example worth following. And here in verse 1, Paul calls every man to aspire to that. The ambition that's worth our lives is to be an example worth following. And so let's be clear, not every man in the church is going to be an elder. But every man should aspire to be the kind of man who could be an elder. I think that's what Paul is saying. And so the call to us is to make it our ambition, not to rise to the official position, but to develop the character that's required for the position. Paul wrote to both Timothy and Titus, giving them guidelines for choosing elders. 
And in both cases, Paul says, look for men who are worth following. And incidentally, just to get this out of the way, those of us who are elders, we realize we have a very long way to go. I think the four of us would say, we know we are called to be examples worth following, and we're seeking to grow in that on the job. And so as we read on here in 1 Timothy and then over in Titus, these are not narrowly applicable passages. They're often consigned to that, to be pulled out and dusted off when a church is desperate for a new elder. Actually, what we're going to read applies to every one of us. These two passages should become blueprints for life for every man. They describe the details and the shape of our ambition as men. And just to clarify why I'm only applying this to men, it's because 1 Timothy chapter 2 seems to reserve the responsibility of eldership for men only. And I refer you to Megan's previous talks on women for the details on that. But the point is, while every Christian is called to godly character, the descriptions we're going to read are given to help Timothy and Titus look for male examples to follow in the church. And we could widen out the whole discussion if we wanted and include what Paul says about deacons. But we're not going to expand it that far today. So follow with me as Paul describes the details and the shape of our ambition as men. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Then, if you keep your place there and turn on just a few pages to Titus, about three pages further on. In Titus 1, verse 5, Paul is talking to Titus about exactly the same thing he's just been talking to Timothy about. He says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, 
not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. You'll notice there's plenty of overlap between those two passages, and that's what we would expect. So we're going to focus mainly on 1 Timothy, but we'll come back to Titus at a couple of points. Back in 1 Timothy, Paul starts with an overall description in chapter 3, verse 2. The overseer is to be above reproach. That's to be the ambition of every man. None of us will ever be the finished article in this life. But our lives are to show good evidence of the following things. What follows explains what Paul means by above reproach. And notice what comes first. Faithful to his wife. The older NIV says the husband of but one wife. Literally, the text says a one-woman man. And there's debate over what exactly Paul means by that. In the ancient world, polygamy was common among well-to-do people. And there are parts of the world where it's common today. I think Paul may well have been aiming to rule out polygamy in the church by what he says there. But that doesn't mean this command is irrelevant for us today. If we think about the reason why polygamy is unacceptable, it's because marriage is to be a picture of Christ and the church. Our marriages are to be living illustrations of that. In Ephesians, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Christ has only one bride. We can't illustrate Christ's love for the church if we have multiple brides. And here's the application for today. Nor can we illustrate Christ's love for the church if we are unfaithful to the one wife we have. It's significant that Paul chooses to start with this, with faithfulness to our wives. It's been said that to succeed at work but fail at home is to fail completely. No other success compensates for failure in the home. That puts a whole new perspective on some of the people classed as heroes today. I can think of two of the biggest heroes of the last century. Men who are still held up as great examples. But in both cases, they were serially unfaithful to their wives. In other areas, they accomplished great things. But to what degree are they really heroes? In what way are they really examples worth following? Paul says if you want to be an example worth following, and you should want that, 
that's your ambition, then start at home. Love your wife. Not just with words, but by a life of faithfulness. Some of us don't have wives. So how are you to apply this? I think the application is set patterns in your life that would help you be a faithful husband. If you sleep around before marriage, is that going to help you be a faithful husband after marriage? If you gorge yourself on porn outside of marriage, do you think you'll just turn that tap off? Once you're in a marriage? If you're single and you want to be an example worth following, take this verse to heart. It's from just over the page in chapter 5. This is how to treat women you're not married to. Paul says, Treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. If you're not married, that's how to be a man who would be faithful to his wife. Paul goes on in our passage in verse 2. Temperate, or we could say sober, clear-headed, self-controlled, respectable. I know that we all have different personalities, and that's good. It keeps things interesting. But whatever our personality, Paul is saying, don't live a life that's out of control. Stop sometimes and rein yourself back in. Reflect on your activities, your priorities. Aim for some kind of balance in your life. Hospitable. We looked at that this morning in Romans 12. We're not to live in splendid isolation. In America, people talk about man caves, which I think is just a place to watch TV, really. And we do all need some time to ourselves, but not all the time. And we can apply this to time at church as well. When you're here, don't just chat to the people you know. Be hospitable to visitors. Make them feel welcome. Set an example in that. Able to teach. Now I realize this is described as a gift in the New Testament. So not everyone will have an upfront teaching gift. But... Notice this from 1 Peter. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Peter is not talking there to Christians with a teaching gift. What he's saying is for all of us. 
We are to set an example of knowing what we believe and being able to share what we believe. And the more naturally and plainly, the better. So even if preaching from the front is the very last thing you want to do or feel gifted to do, set an example in knowing the truths of the faith and sharing them gently and respectfully in conversation, in the discussion at home group, This is what Paul writes to Titus about the kind of man Titus is to look out for in the church. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. That description certainly includes teaching from the front, but it is not limited to that. How is the church body going to choose elders who teach the truth if the church body itself is unsure about the truth? Be a man who can keep the elders accountable in their preaching. I don't mean you're to campaign for your own personal view on every disputable point. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is learn to tell sound doctrine from false doctrine. We need to be able to do that. According to your ability, seek to make progress in knowing what the Bible teaches. Don't be content with what you knew about the Bible 20 years ago. I met a man once who proudly told me He'd studied his Bible carefully in his late teens. Apparently that was the last time he'd studied it carefully. When I met him, he'd retired, but he had no fresh study to tell me about. Don't ever think that you know the Bible well enough. When it comes to holding firmly to the trustworthy message... Be an example worth following. In fact, your example will be more powerful than mine is ever going to be. Why do I say that? Because people expect preachers to know their Bible. Set an example as a non-preacher who knows their Bible. Back to 1 Timothy 3, verse 3. Not given to drunkenness. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. Does this verse highlight some area of weakness in your life? Is your life compromised in one of these areas? If it is, then set an example by seeking help. Ask someone to hold you accountable in that area. Ask them to pray regularly with you about your temper, 
or your love of money or whatever it is. God's agenda for our lives is to change us. His agenda is to conform us to the image of his son. Let's set an example by seeking conformity to God's son. Verse 4. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Notice we're back home again. Whatever success we might show in other areas of our lives, we have to prioritize what happens at home. Paul adds this to what we've just read in his letter to Titus. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. If Paul was here, we might want to raise an issue with him about this. We might want to say, Paul, we can't make our children believe, can we? No, we can't. And in fact, the word believe should probably be translated faithful, meaning faithful to us as parents. Paul is not saying it's our fault if our children don't become Christians. But it does reflect on us if our children run wild. And that seems to be the point here. Once they're grown up, they will go their own way, for better or for worse. But while they're still at home, do we have our household under control? And most of us, I would guess, feel that we seldom have it under control. But would our friends say, yes, he leads his family and he manages his family well. He doesn't have a perfect family because nobody does. But in the way he relates to his children, he is worthy of full respect. He's an example worth following. Would our friends say that about us? Verse 6. He must not be a recent convert. Or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. As far as time goes, you may not be a recent convert. But the question to ask ourselves is, in terms of maturity, would people mistake you for a recent convert? Or would they see evidence of growth? And what about outsiders? Again, we talked about this this morning. Do your work colleagues know you claim to be a Christian? If not, would they believe the rumor 
if they heard it. And if they defined a Christian by what they see in you, how would they define a Christian? This morning I mentioned my grandmother's doctor. If people took their definition of a Christian from him, what a tragedy. What a lost opportunity. To be known all over the town as a Christian and to be known also as bitter and miserable. How would people define a Christian if they only had you to go on? And we need to be very careful here. This is not a challenge to put on a better act, to pretend harder. This is a challenge to pursue genuine faithfulness and godliness. This is a challenge to be ambitious about faithfulness and godliness. Well then, what is the manual for ambitious men? Obviously, you know what I'm going to say, it's this. And I make no apologies for yet again going back to this statement from Paul. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Back in May, some of us went to the Northern Men's Convention. The speaker that day was Dan Strange. And he said a lot, being the only speaker, and he said plenty of helpful things. But one thing I thought was particularly helpful. During the question time, he was asked, what's the key to being a faithful man? His reply was, stick your nose in the Bible every day. Now, was he being simplistic? Was he suggesting that would magically sort everything out in our lives? No, he is fully aware of reality. He has eight or nine kids in his house. He supports West Ham. I don't know which is more trying. But what I mean is he understood that soaking ourselves in Scripture is foundational. Telling us to stick our nose in the Bible every day is not simplistic. It's a basic ingredient for a faithful life. If we are ambitious to be an example worth following, we've got to stick our nose in the manual every day. And not just what we like to call the practical bits of the Bible. The bits that tell us what to do and what not to do. We need all of it. The greatest antidote for love of money, for example, is not simply to read in the Bible, don't love money. The antidote is to read about the value and worthiness and greatness of our God. 
It's to focus our eyes on the glorious inheritance ahead of us when we will join God in his glory. That's the cure for love of money or love of any other lesser treasure. If you're an ambitious man, study the manual. Ask God to transform you, to bring your mind and life in line with what you find in the manual. Take the Bible, feed your godly ambition, then pursue that ambition every day. And by God's grace, we'll all be examples that are worth following. I realize it's hard when I've just unloaded a talk on you to fire back right away with questions. But I do want to give the opportunity to do that, and not only to ask questions, but maybe to add comments or insights from your own experience. So if anything came up in what we looked at tonight or the previous night, if anything stuck in your head from that, please be willing to share it with us or raise it. And if you are, I think we have a mic available. Yeah, I was just thinking about when you said about being able to teach. And I guess um, it's true that not everybody feels they have an upfront gift to teach. But I just wanted to highlight as well that as men, and especially as fathers, we are, there is a requirement that, that we're able to teach and lead our families, isn't it? So I think that it's important, just as a comment to add, that we get better all the time at knowing the scriptures in order to teach it to our children and um, certainly to our wives as well. I think we are responsible as the leaders to teach our own families. So I think, um, yeah, I just wanted to add that as a comment yeah. that we need to, I certainly need to get better at it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all do. So. Yeah, and I think just to, to add to that, that we... We can all feel very inferior when we try to do that. I think I find that more challenging than, than doing this. It's a harder, far harder audience. Um, so I just say that to say it's hard for all of us. But uh, it is, like Steve said, it's a responsibility to do something. Again, I think Dan Strange was helpful because he's, I don't know how many degrees and doctorates he has, but he said with his eight or nine kids, and I think he said a dog, it's an incredible challenge to get anything done with his family from the Bible, but he keeps it simple, he keeps his expectations reasonable, and he does something. And I think that's what we're called to. Thank you. The mic's on, on its way there. Thank you. Uh, 
so long ago you were thinking about starting a preacher's class. Has that ever crossed your mind again? Yes, thank you for publicly calling me to account. <laughs> yeah, uh, several times I've, I've talked about that, having a, a group where men who were interested, even just for their own growth, in looking about preaching and guidelines about how to go about preparing talks. And I have I've, uh, talked about that on and off, various points, and yeah, I have never uh, fulfilled that. But now that you've uh, called me out, I will make an effort to... <laughs> Uh, ask Steve to do it? <laughs> no, I'll, uh, I'll talk to Steve and see if between us we could maybe do something because I think it, it's, a, it's a good thing to have going in the church. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, just talking to Rose, so I'm going to raise the question. There are a lot of women who teach in Sunday school, in their families, in their... Um, sometimes women have to teach um, but but what is the relation of women that teach to men that teach even if they don't teach from uh, not preach or um, sorry (laughs) I think really it comes down to Uh, where does the buck stop in the church? So, for example, I, with the agreement of the other elders, asked Megan before the summer to do two nights speaking about what the Bible said to women. And it was directed to women, but the men were mostly here. But it was a situation where Megan had been asked to do that. And so I think... Basically, from chapter 2, what we get is not that women never do anything. Obviously, we, we don't do that in this church. That's not our policy. But the, the final authority on what is taught and the regular teaching comes from men because that is where chapter 2 seems to land. And obviously, that, that says no to women in a very narrow area, but it says yes to women in a whole lot of areas. And so I think that's the challenge, always saying no where the Bible says no, but also saying yes where the Bible says yes. And it's hard always to to get that balance, right? We veer into saying yes when the Bible says no sometimes, and other churches like our own can sometimes veer into saying no when the Bible says yes. Is that helpful? Um, There are people in the the Bible that were great leaders, prophets, um, Samuel for one, but their sons didn't seem Mm -hmm. to, uh, you you talked about, it doesn't mean to say they're going to become a Christian if if the the parents are, but would you say that uh, people like Samuel um, and Eli, well Eli particularly, um, failed? Well, I, I think not that you make it a principle and say if, you're, if your kids turn out the way Eli's did that you've done something wrong because I think you can do everything right. And like I said, your kids are going to go their own way and God's sovereignty is involved. But I think if you look at Eli and Samuel, it's clear 
the, the way it's presented to us is that they did fail in their responsibility. Eli did not call his sons to account. And Samuel apparently was content not to know what was going on. So, yeah, I think there are plenty of examples where great men abdicated their responsibility to at least try with their children. There was no guarantee they would have succeeded. Uh, we're told they were, they were worthless men, Samuel and Eli's sons, but apparently they didn't make the effort they should have made. And I think scripture would have been more positive about the dads if they had done what they should have done, no matter how the sons turned out. Anything else? Don't be afraid to uh, throw something in. Yeah, can we have the mic up here? Just don't want anyone to miss that. (laughs) (laughs) To be a good man, he's got to have a good woman behind him as well. I think that's true. just a personal thing that I can share. When we were in Chicago, and uh, I, was, I was already married at this point, but one of the men who was um, most helpful to me in thinking about going to work in a church said, the right wife will double your ministry, and the wrong wife will have your ministry. And unfortunately, I think that's very painfully true, and, and the evidence is seen of that, and I know it's a very painful reality for some people, but I think it's, it's true, yeah. It's true for people who aren't pastors, obviously, as well, in terms of your effectiveness as a Christian person. Thanks. Uh, you mentioned um, loving our wives as part of the ambition of living a Christian life. And I feel that what Paul says in Ephesians about loving your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, it's a tremendous uh, challenge. Mm-hmm. Apart from that, well, I mean, that's, that I, I, I always hold to that. Uh, yeah, just that, that uh, loving our wives as Christ loved the church is a tremendous challenge. Yeah. Agree. I just wanted to say too, um, just to pick up on what Margaret said, because I think it, it is important for all of us, if we are married or if we're thinking about getting married, to, to think about the person that we are marrying, but as encouragement to those who are single as well, that, um, that obviously Christ was single himself, and so with the Lord, I think he provides all that we need to be a faithful man or woman in the context that he's placed us in. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to add that as an encouragement to those who are not and I can just add, in terms of uh, future plans for this, we're having little breaks in this series to do the, um, the night with 
uh, Josh, at Remembrance Sunday, and we may have something else in December, but in February for Table Talk, I've asked Dorcas uh, Horobin and um, Robert Luger to come, and they work a lot with uh, single Christians, and I've asked them to come for the February Table Talk and do a night with us on the whole topic of singleness and how a church can be more um, respectful and sensitive to, to the question of singleness. So that's coming up in February, just to mention that in advance for you. comment on uh, Dan Strange's uh, comment that he made about sticking your nose in the Bible every day. Wasn't that something that had a a real influence on you with your own father? Uh, Bringing again into the mix uh, um, examples for our children. Yeah, thanks. I I know I've mentioned that before a few times, but maybe not everyone has heard that. When I was growing up, uh, my dad's study was in a bedroom and we converted the loft in the house so that the exit from my bedroom was a staircase that went through my dad's study so when I got up in the morning I had to go through his study and I think I've said before every morning when I came down those stairs he was on his knees with his bible open uh, reading and praying no matter how late he would got in the night before he was there before I got up and yeah that can't fail to make a massive influence on you um, and I would say too he didn't just do that he, he did live it out at home as well so yeah I think it's an example of how something like that can make a massive impact if each of us consider that in our own homes in what we do Uh, just uh, one verse that you've uh, read, Tim, that uh, I've just been a little bit puzzled about. In, in 1 Timothy um, 3, verse 6, um, talking about those who aspire to be an overseer, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Could you comment on that verse, please? Well, I think it's just pointing to the devil's core sin being pride and I think I've certainly I noticed this when when we were living in America that there's a tendency there if a high profile person say an American football player or a, a rock musician becomes a Christian there's a tendency there to immediately have him speaking at all the big churches uh, giving his testimony maybe within months of the guy becoming a Christian but unfortunately, very often as well, things go badly wrong in some of those situations. And I think what Paul is saying is that, that we can have a tendency sometimes to, to laud people who are converted in maybe a, a high-profile way and want to shove them 
in front of people before they've really sorted out their own walk with the Lord and what it means to be a Christian. And, um, and we can actually put people in a very difficult situation in terms of pride that they haven't even begun to understand or, or try to cope with in, in the Holy Spirit's power. So I think it's just a, an encouragement to, to wait and bide our time, let people get a feel for living the Christian life. Or, like Satan did, we can have a very public fall. Does that help? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was just puzzling about the phrase, the same judgment as, as the devil. Um, and the fact, if, if, if this man is a recent convert, if he is truly a convert, um, how is it possible he can mm-hmm. fall under the same judgment as the devil? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, well, I think there, again, if you read Paul's letters, you come across multiple instances where he says, so-and-so has shipwrecked their faith, they're um, turned their back, they've, they've gone, to, they love this present world. So I think Paul acknowledges sometimes people make public commitments and time shows that they were not genuinely converted in the first place. And I think, I mean, he's saying two things there. He's saying don't put someone in a difficult position where they might fall, but he's also suggesting really that if someone makes a profession, give time to see if it proves to be genuine. We've outdone ourselves with questions tonight. Any uh, final comments, questions? Well, let me pray, and then we can enjoy the food that's next door. Father, as we ended this morning, we have to end again tonight by saying that what is set before us here and what we're called to is beyond us without your power and your strength. And so I pray for all the men here. We could pray for the ladies too, but I pray specifically for the men that you will first of all give us this godly ambition that dominates any other ambition in our lives, that we want to be an example of a Christian man that others will do well to follow. pray that you'll give us that ambition, help us to pursue that in every single area of our lives and give us the strength that we need to persevere and to be faithful. We know that we will never be perfect, but by your grace we want to grow in being what you call us to be. So I pray that you will help us. I pray for the ladies here that they will be careful to pray for the man, for all of the men. I thank you now for the food that's been provided. I pray that you will help us as we spend time together. I pray that we will be an encouragement to one another and not a hindrance to one another. Amen.